You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. I'm Chris Isaacson, one of the elders here. We're reading out of Matthew 18, uh, verses 1 through 9. In the chairback Bible in front of you, if you don't have a Bible, it's page 568, 568. Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God our Father, this is your word. Lord, may you allow Jeremy to bring it faithfully um, with clarity today. May your spirit drive it deep into our hearts as we start this series on biblical conflict resolution. God, I pray that you would bring church unity, that you would bring reconciliation and restoration where any relationships that are currently not where they need to be. God, use your word to your work by your spirit's power. Amen. You may be seated. It was the bottom of the tenth frame. He was losing by nine pins. Final throw. He stared down the lane. It is the bowling championship, mind you. Those of you who watch such things on ESPN, it's the PBA. And he needs a strike to win it all. And he's been down this entire final match, whatever you call they do in bowling. (laughs) He's got one last throw. And interestingly enough, this whole final set There's been this little guy over here who's been chirping at him, mocking him, teasing him. He doesn't do well when somebody starts coming at him. So he's been chirping back. It's on TV. You can go watch the whole thing if you want. And he eyeballs it. He's getting ready. His dad had won four professional bowling tournaments. He had four to his name. He's getting close to retirement. This would be the fifth and iconic championship for him. He stares it down. He rolls the ball and 
boom, strike. And then he says to that guy talking trash to him, who do you think you are? I am. His name's Pete Weber. I don't hold it against you. You have no idea what I'm talking about. For sports fans, this is an iconic moment where Weber lets out one of the most nonsensical quotes grammatically. Like his English teacher's rolling over in the grave going, I did teach this guy how to speak English. But what's so fascinating to me about this clip, you can go YouTube it later, is this emotional response that Pete has to the trash talker and he just wants to make sure this guy in the crowd knows as well as everybody else who's really the big dog of this tournament. If you like bowling, this guy's must-see TV. He acts like a WWF wrestler. Like he chops when he gets a strike. That's how fascinating this guy is. Now, I don't suppose, I don't suppose you speak like this when somebody really starts to get to you and gets under your skin. My guess is your grammar, like my grammar, is a little bit more coherent. But what I like about this quote, what I like about this clip, is it gives us a window into what's really going on under the surface. And I think, if we're honest, the reason it's got a bazillion views is because we all know what it's like to be that guy and to feel it's swelling up inside of us, and then to just let it go. Like if your spouse has ever come up to you and, and commented on some annoying habit that you've heard like 50 million times before. Now, if you've been married very long and you care about keeping any sort of peace and harmony in the home, then you know not to respond like Pete Weber. But in your heart of hearts, when that comment gets made, have you ever felt this thing rising up in you where you say, who do you think you are? I am. Or maybe you're at work. You wouldn't use these words, but your supervisor comes and says, hey, you haven't been getting it done, so we're going to have to put you on a plan. You ever thought in your heart of hearts, who do you think you are, man? I mean, the reason I'm having a hard time getting my job done is because I do your job too. If I only had one job, I wouldn't, I'd do it a lot better, thanks. Who do you think you are, boss? Or maybe it's a friend. A friend comes up to you and touches on something that's very tender, and in your heart of hearts, you think, oh, is that how this is gonna go? Oh, is, oh, is that what this friendship looks like now? Who do you think you are? Talk about sin. Oh, well, I mean, if we're gonna talk about each other's sin, well, then let's talk about each other's sin. These sorts of realities are true for many of us Maybe they don't, we don't say them, and maybe we don't get on, caught on TV responding this way. But in our heart of hearts, I think a lot of us are more like Pete Weber than we care to imagine. Well, good morning and welcome to Mill Creek. I'm Pastor Jeremy, one of the pastors here. Thrilled to be with you this morning as we begin a new sermon series looking at biblical conflict resolution. We've been walking through the, the 
letter to the Romans. And we're going to be back to that in five short weeks. We're going to be, hit Romans chapter 9, and we're going to keep plugging away to finish that book. But, but for now, we're taking this uh, next five weeks, and we're going to do a sermon series, especially focusing on the epicenter of biblical conflict in the New Testament, Matthew 18. And the reason that the elders and I are excited about this sermon series is because we've been personally observing and experiencing so much conflict. In the event that you've been like living under a rock, the last 18 to 24 months have just been bananas. And, and our culture, it seems like, is just going crazy. And, and some of our friends, it feels like, in our view, are going crazy. And, and even those who, who are normally fairly easygoing people, like even the folks who you go, Man, their blood pressure never gets over 60, over 100. They're totally fine. Even those people seem to be so frustrated as this cultural moment that is dividing us, whether it's about a political party or whether it's about your view of COVID or whether it's your view about whether you should wear a mask or not wear a mask or whether it's your view on whether you should get a vaccine or not get a vaccine or whether it's your view on foreign policy. And then it seems to me social media is just a bunch of fuel that comes onto this humongous bonfire and it is just rocking our culture and people who used to be friends, who used to get along, it seems like stuff is so polarized that they're just drifting apart. And that's happening out there. And, and I'm sad to say it's happening in here too. The elders and I have spent, we've spent hours praying, tearfully talking to folks. There's this fracture that's hitting our church too, and it's revealing a gap, a gap between what the Bible teaches Christians are supposed to do when they face conflict and then what we actually do. Here's what Jesus says we ought to do when we're in conflict with one another, and then, and then we're way over here somewhere doing whatever we feel like. That's the gap we see, so... How are Christians supposed to practice conflict resolution? When you get hurt by somebody in the church, what are you supposed to do? Or, or flip it. When, when somebody comes up to you and says, you really hurt me. 87 months ago you said this thing and I've been holding on to it since. What are we supposed to do? Spoiler alert, it's not say to them, who do you think you are? I am. When, when we are feeling so upset about what some person who is in our church, who's a Christian, has said or done, when we're feeling so upset that, that frankly we can't imagine being at church with them any longer, and our impulse is to, I guess I'm going to go to a new service now. I guess I'm not going to see, I'm going to change small groups. I'm going to, I got to, I guess I'm not going to return their texts anymore. What are we supposed to do? For the elders, one of the realities for us is there's been people who've been part of this church for years, even decades, and they've walked away. What are we supposed to do about that? What does the Bible teach? We're 
I'm not gonna answer all of these questions exhaustively, but for the next five weeks, we're wanting to get into this. And sort of the, the way our elder board and leadership is wired, when we see an elephant in the room, man, we wanna talk about that elephant. When stuff's on fire, we wanna run into it, so we're trying to run into this fire. If you're struggling with what Christian conflict and how to resolve it looks like, I'm glad you're here. And I wanna encourage you to let you know, Christian conflict is not abnormal. This is maybe one of the paradigm shifts that I hope happens in this sermon series. Conflict is normal in a church. It's normal in a family. It's normal in life. See, some of us, we walk into conflict and we feel conflict and, and man, we love peace and we love harmony and we want some of that approval. And so conflict happens and one of the things that we think of is, oh no, there's something wrong here. This must be sin when the Bible doesn't call conflict sin. Now, you can deal with conflict sinfully, but having a conflict isn't sin. And what is more, it's not weird if you have conflict. You want to know what weird is? No conflict. Like if you're here and you're like, I have never had a conflict in my entire life. My thought is, well, you vanilla bean, I don't know what to tell you, but I hope you get some, per you should hang out with Pete Weber a little bit is what you should do. Get into a small group and start talking about sin issues, that, uh, start being humble, start, start talking about these things. It's, it's odd if you only have peace all your life, especially for Christians who are trying to obey the word of God, who believe the gospel and are discipling others. Man, conflict's part of life. And so this morning we begin in Matthew 18, and we're going to consider as Jesus is talking to his people, his disciples, those who call themselves part of God's people, he's going to begin with the crucial character quality all Christians have to have. This is the crucial quality all Christians have. In fact, if you would say, uh, I have done research and I know without a doubt that um, I have never had this crucial quality ever once in my entire life, I'm not sure you're actually a Christian. That's how crucial this quality is. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to look at verses 1 to 9 today. Here is the big idea for point one, the quality all Christians have. From the top, chapter 18, verse one, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Little context here, Matthew 18, we're not quite to where Jesus is gonna die on the cross yet, but, but he's already been doing some wicked awesome stuff and he's been preaching some crazy sermons and, and the disciples are beginning to realize this Jesus is different than anybody we know. Like he's a baller. And Jesus is like on this ascent and they all get the idea like he's going to become the king and he keeps telling us he is the king. And so if he's going to be the king, we want to get in good with the king because whenever he sits down on his throne, he, we want him to make us one of the generals. He, he's about to become the president. We want him to put us on his cabinet. So like, I want to get in real good because I want that corner office, Jesus. So like, what's it take to get the corner office in your kingdom? Now, of course, the disciples were all wrong. Jesus wasn't going to be the geopolitical king who kicked Nero in the face and sat down at the government of Rome yet. But that's what they're all thinking. So Jesus... What do you got to do to be like a baller in your kingdom, man? Jesus says, calling to him a child, he put the child in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, truly I say to you, which is an old-fashioned way of saying, check this out, I'm about to drop a truth bomb on your face. Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now real quick, look at the answer Jesus gives. 
Does Jesus answer the question the disciples ask? Look in the text. The disciples are wanting to know, how do I become great? And Jesus answers, this is how you get, you can say it, in. in. Hey man, how do I get the corner office? How am I sure I'm going to be on your cabinet? And Jesus is saying, I'm not even sure you're sitting in the same building yet. He's answering how you get in. And now he's going to get to greatness, but it's this idea of entering that we're going to see again in verse 8 and 9. If you scan down to 8 and 9, you're going to see that the word enter is there again. What Jesus seems to be emphasizing here is not how to make sure we get on his upper echelon cabinet. Jesus isn't worried about how to help us get at the special table of the VIPs. Jesus wants to make sure the disciples are in the kingdom of heaven. So what he does is he's got all these adults around him. It's like a football huddle, but much bigger. And then he takes this little six-year-old child and he puts the child like in the middle of the, of the whole huddle. And he says, if you want to get in the kingdom of heaven, you have to be like this little one. Now, in our day and age, man, we love kids. You love kids, I love kids. Man, I push like on kids' pictures on Facebook more than I know what to do with. I, kids take all our money. We just love them. They're great. But that's not the way it was then. Kids weren't thought of that much then. So Jesus is saying, you need to become like a kid, which maybe goes, well, like what's, what exactly is Jesus trying to get at? I love the way New Bible Commentary puts it, says, the point was not any supposedly childish qualities of innocence or unselfishness, but the status of the child at the bottom of the pecking order, subject to grown-up authority, dependent and powerless. To accept this lowest rank is to be great, and to treat the least prominent as the most important is to echo the attitude of Jesus. See, children weren't thought that highly of at all. And, and, and it would be as shocking to them then as if Jesus was to put a child in the middle of the Kansas City Chiefs offensive huddle and say, hey, Chiefs, you want to be in the NFL? You got to play like this little kid. And they'd all go like, kids bring nothing to the table, man. What are you talking about? See, if we're going to, identify as Christians, if we are to be Christians, what Jesus is teaching us is the quality we are to have is humility. Would you write that down? Humility. This is the crucial quality all Christians have. It's humility. Okay, man, like, what do you mean by humility? Oxford Dictionary defines it this way. It's a modest or low view of one's importance. But, but I really love the way Keller puts it in this little booklet. We have it for free out here if you want to read it. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Keller has this quote. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. See, the tendency all of us have is we either think really, really highly of ourselves. I'm awesome. Thank you very much. Who do you think you are? I am. 
Or we make the opposite mistake. I'm so awful, I'm a bad person. Oh man, I just don't even know why you're my friend. I'm such a failure, God, how could you even love? And in both cases, it's two sides of the same coin. It's still all about me. And what Keller's helping us see, and it's based on C.S. Lewis's work, is that the essence of gospel-centered humility is not thinking more or less of myself. It's just thinking of myself less. See, while the disciples are bickering about who's going to be great, who's going to be on the cabinet, who's going to be able to sit at the right hand or the left hand of Jesus, Jesus is going, I think maybe you missed the memo. We need to talk about how you get into the kingdom of heaven. And the way you get into my community is through humility. You've got to have a humble attitude. And this is crucial. If, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, this is the attitude necessary to ask for salvation. It's being willing to get down on one knee and say, Jesus, I can't save myself. I humbly come to you. Would you save me? And you've, you've got to have this attitude to be saved. It's, 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 to, to ask Jesus to save you requires an attitude of humility. And that's why I started with, if you don't have this sort of heart attitude, if you've never had this hard attitude, if you think you're going to be able to go to judgment and say, who do you think you are? I am. That's not how Christians act. Rather, all Christians bow the knee. In fact, all Christians flip that and we say this, man, I know I'm not, but you are. You are. Of course, it's not the attitude of humility that saves us. Only Jesus saves, but the attitude of humility is, is required for us to ask Christ to save us. So Jesus has clarified it's humility to get you in, but then in verse 4, it is also what makes you great from the text. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So then humility is the quality that Christians are to possess, both to get in the kingdom, but also to be great in the kingdom. And it is this attitude then that is crucial in any conflict you're walking through. You've got to have an attitude of humility to, to come to this conflict that you're wrestling through with like a child lowest on the food chain, just willing to humble yourself and not be all about me, 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 but just saying, man, I want to have that heart of humility so that we can resolve this conflict. Here's the application. In, in the middle of conflict, pray and ask the Lord, would you help me to be humble? All of a sudden, something's happening. Your, your buttons are getting pushed. You feel, your, you feel your heart rate going up, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your boss, whether it's your friend. Right then and there, if you're in Christ, the Spirit's with you. Pray without ceasing. The Spirit's praying for you. Jesus is interceding. He'd love for you to pray this prayer. Lord, help me to be humble. Like right now, I need to be humble with this person. Help me to... Approach this conflict bottom of the barrel. Last is the new first. Help me give the best away. Lord, make me a humble person. 
One of the practical ways to be humble is, is when you're in conflict with someone, beware if you're trying to get the speck out of their eye, Matthew 7. Jesus says, you've got a log in your own, but you're trying to get the speck out of somebody else's eye. An attitude of humility would be to acknowledge that you have the equivalent of a telephone pole. I mean, how crazy would this be, kids, for me to have a telephone pole in my eye, and then you walk up and I go, hey, I want to help you get a splinter out of yours. Can you get a little closer to me? Be careful. I've got a 50-foot telephone pole in my eyeball. Have humility. And get the log out of your eye first. This is the crucial attitude of humility. If on your own you realize you've got work to do here, perhaps the prayer from Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my every thought. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in your way everlasting. Church, this is the crucial quality that begins us on biblical reconciliation. Humility, certainly what makes you great in the kingdom of heaven, but required to get in the kingdom of heaven. And warning real quick, if you're here thinking, yeah, preacher, I know so-and-so needs to hear this. You're kind of looking around. You're like, oh, yeah, they in service. Uh-huh. Get them. When I get home, I'm going to text my, I'm going to text my friend. They need to listen to this sermon twice. <laughs> when I get home, I'm going to email the preaching pastor of Mill Creek. That cat needs to listen to this sermon twice. Just heads up. I mean, that's not humility either. It's not humility either, man. I got to preach this thing to myself. And yeah, maybe somebody else will benefit from this, but this is the word doing work on you. So, 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 so don't be like pointing at everybody else that needs this, man. We all need this. The crucial quality all Christians have here. Big idea number two. Here's the people all Christians love. Verse five, whoever receives... One such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but, but I want you to make sure we all see the connection between an attitude of humility. It actually filters down and it changes the way we behave. Like the, the word of Christ here should not just be theory in our brain, but it actually filters itself down and should come out of the ways that we treat one another, which a profound consequence of being humble is that you would be a person who loves and receives others regardless of their status. There's this thing that happens when we get in the middle of conflict that we begin to start kind of going through credentials or going through experience or thinking, man, I'm way up here and you're way down here. But an attitude of humility would flip that in your heart. It would put you at the last of the line, put you in the bottom of the barrel and would leave you being in a position where you go, well, I know this, Christ has called me to love this person. Even if I don't like them, even if I don't see eye to eye with them, I'm going to love this person even if I I don't think much of their status. And in contrast this, this verse with our culture today, like in our culture today, if, you're, if you have a big bank account, if you have a big title, 
If you're sitting in an important position, if you're really beautiful, if you have some special gifts, if you win Olympic gold medals, man, those are the people when they walk into our church, be like, I'd love to get them in my life group. Oh, you have seven gold medals from Tokyo? Please, we're having a life group lunch. We'd love to have you be a part of that. That's the way the world works. Now, we're supposed to humbly love people regardless of their status. And James gets into this in James 2.1. Here's a cross-reference. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, your worship service, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, hey, you sit here in the good spot. When you say to the poor guy, hey, you stand over there, sit down on my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Church, we are to be people who receive all types of people, regardless of their status. And when it comes to conflict within the church, there's gonna be, it's going to be really hard to, to receive somebody that you feel so strongly opposed to in whatever dimensions we're thinking. But this is what Christ has done for the church, is we are to unite around the gospel. We're not to rely, unite around a political platform or a view of a pandemic or what we do with masks or whether we take a vaccine or whether or not we agree on the racial problem and the racial solution or whether we agree on foreign policy. Like it would be easy for us to put all that junk out on a sign and just say, hey, just so you know, if you're driving by, you wanna be part of our church, we demand that you agree with us on all of this so that we don't have any conflict inside the church. But that ain't the way the book is written and that's not what Jesus has done for us. Us. He's united us around the gospel so that, so that we can have people on utter sides of all of these debates and much more that we haven't even mentioned. And yet we can come here and we can put all of that down and we can humbly say, man, we have Jesus together. And that's what's most important. The unity of the church is what's important in Jesus' heart, that we would have humility. We would love one another well. Man, anybody can love somebody who's nice to them and perfectly agrees with them, that's easy. Man, it's hard. It's hard when somebody insults you and leaves you just in a pile and they're in the same church as you, that's hard. Man, it's hard when somebody's hurt you at life group and you never told them and now you're three years into this conflict and you just have this seed of bitterness and you don't like them anymore, that's hard. We are to humbly love one another. Humbly love. Humbly love. If you're here and you're thinking, man, I, yeah, I want to be this kind of a person. Like, what's a real practical step application here? Pray, Lord, give me grace to love everyone in this church. Lord, give me grace to love everyone in this church. If you're needing another step, one way that you could really proactively strengthen this muscle is you could be a part of our volunteer ministry with children here on Sunday morning, high school students, middle school students, children on Wednesday nights. Like you could literally serve and care for the, some of the least of these in our community. 
But if you're here so far and you're thinking, oh man, good grief, I guess I'm not as humble as I thought I was and I didn't realize humility was so crucial to conflict or you're aware of some ways that you've sinned and you're aware of the own gap in your life, all of this does reveal this terrible flaw all of us in this room have and that leads us to point number three, the flaw all Christians battle. This is verses six to nine, look in the text. Here's the flaw we all battle. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now, in understanding these verses, I found it very helpful to know that the word sin and temptations in this paragraph literally could be translated stumbling block. I actually like that translation better. If if you wanted to circle it on your little handout, or if you've got a Bible you're wanting to write in, the word sins there in verse 6, you've got temptations three times and sin one in verse 7, and then you've got sin in verse 8 and verse 9. All of those are this idea of a stumbling block, that, that what we're doing is we are putting stumbling blocks, think of like a hurdle in the middle of a real important race. You're just throwing this hurdle in front of somebody else. And Jesus is saying, woe to you if you're throwing hurdles in front of a, one of your Christian brothers or sisters at the church and you're making them sin. Well, you're not making them, but woe to you if you're putting a stumbling block in front of them or for yourself. Woe to you if you've got these stumbling blocks you keep putting in front of yourself. Woe to you. It'd be better for you to attach a rope to a giant stone and get thrown in an ocean than to do that. That's serious. And the idea of like being attached to a big old stone and thrown in the ocean, that sounds scary to me. Would it be better to take your sin serious and get into heaven without some body part than to be chill and not get in? What, what Jesus is doing then is he's warning anybody that's in his community, any of his people, by extension, us today, his church, Church, beware. Sin, temptations, they're serious. And we need to take sin serious. Now, now don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that, that the way that you are saved is by taking sin serious. No, no, no. We are only saved by faith in Jesus Christ. But those who have been saved realize and embody Jesus's attitudes and we say, man, Jesus has taken sin serious, so I want to as well. And when it comes to conflict, we wanna be careful that we're not causing others in the community to stumble over sin that we've created. And we certainly don't wanna stumble over sins ourselves. 
So, so, so Jesus is not saying here that if you're a Christian but you're still having a little bit of difficulty with sin, you're probably not going to go to heaven. That's not the heart of this. It's speaking specifically toward a fruit of those who have been saved as they're going to take sin seriously. Here then is the flaw all Christians have, is we don't do this. We don't take sin serious. We don't take our sin serious. Oh, we'll take everybody else's sin serious. Somebody sins against me, man, I put it in a microscope and I blow it up about 100x. I'm like, oh yeah, how dare you? But then when I sin, I put it in a telescope. I'm like, man, that's so far away, I can barely see it. My sin, itty bitty bitty bitty. Your sin, oh. Our tendency is to look at all that and say, oh Lord, Lord, I'll be your servant right now and reveal my friend's sin to them. I will. You just call my name. You put me in, spirit. I mean, I know that's your job, spirit, but I'm ready to come play tag team. Our job isn't to point everybody else's sin out. Our job is to take sin seriously. Being careful with stumbling blocks for ourselves. Being careful with stumbling blocks for others. And it is this warning of hell here that should make us take this serious. We're talking about eternity. We're talking about your soul. Here then's a prayer for application. Lord, would you help me take my sin serious? I got to hang out with some teenagers this weekend. And I love hanging out with teenagers, talking to them about the Bible. And one of the common... One of the common questions teenagers can sometimes have is, man, how do I know if this is real and, and why doesn't Jesus speak to me audibly? Or sometimes I pray and it doesn't get answered. And this is the kind of prayer that I think Jesus answers through the power of the Spirit all the time. A prayer that says, hey, Spirit, what sin do you want me to seriously battle right now? Like if you're in here and you're like, ooh, I've sort of not been... Sensing that the spirit is alive and working inside of me, my guess is if you ask this one, you're going to get a quick answer. Spirit, what sin do you want me to seriously battle right now? Or especially in light of the conflict resolution, which is the greater context of chapter 18 and the reason that we're thinking about humility and love for others and sin seriously through this lens of conflict resolution is because of the context of this whole chapter. And that would lead you perhaps to ask this question to the Spirit. Christ, is there anyone I'm sinning against that I need to pursue reconciliation with? I think this gets to the heart of church unity here. And just in case, just in case any of you think that this would be the sort of medicine that I'd say, hey, you take the medicine, I'm good. That isn't the case. I can talk more about it privately if you want, but I'm having to do this stuff right now too. So this isn't me coming in trying to bring the word of God down on your head. I'm getting worked over by the spirit as well. If you're here and you know there's somebody I got to go get reconciled with. There's somebody in Mill Creek. Maybe there's somebody in the global church. Man, we're not on good terms. If the spirit is calling you to go reconcile a relationship, look at me. 
Look at me. Do it. The Spirit's leading you. Obey right away. And He's the Lord, right? And you don't look at the boss and go, no thanks, I'm going to do it my way, bro. Obey right away. And it's humility then that's going to give us the ability to go to somebody and have to confess our sin. It's humility that's going to allow us to love other people. And it's, and it's humility that's going to allow us to take sin serious, realizing, man, I don't have sin whooped. Man, sin and Satan, those are dangerous. And he's a lot smarter than me and he's a lot stronger than me. So I'm going to take this stuff serious and I want to walk your way, Jesus. But without humility, friends, we're just a bunch of hypocrites functionally walking around, saying to everybody else, who do you think you are? I am. But of course, as Christ's people, we don't, ask, we don't say that. As Christ's people, we say, we know we're not, but you are. For it is in Jesus that we find the one who perfectly did this. See, Jesus, he is the only one who came down to earth and he did live perfect. He lived the life that would have allowed him to beat his chest like King Kong and say, I showed y'all what I did. Man, I'm important. I'm the one. Look at me. I am. He could have said that, but he didn't. And said, Jesus came and they crucified him and he willingly went to the cross. And at the cross, friend, that's where the great millstone was put around his neck and he was drowned in the, in the ocean of God's wrath there. Do you see? For any of us who are saved, man, that wrath of God had to be paid and Jesus took it and he went to the scary death so that you wouldn't have to experience that spiritually. There at the cross, Jesus went into the eternal hellfire, man, and he quenched it because of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. And he was resurrected on the third day, triumphant over sin and Satan and death. And because of him then, he grants us this opportunity through the power of his spirit to be humble people. Humble people who say, man, I'm not, but you are. And you've called me to be humble, treat other people regardless of their status, and to take my sin serious, so I want to. And having such an attitude would allow us then to plug in to real church unity. If you're here, you're a Christian, and I hope you've got a clear next step if the Spirit's moving in you. Lord, help me take my sin seriously. Pray, Spirit, what do you want me to seriously battle? Christ, is there anyone I'm needing to seek reconciliation with? If you're here and not a Christian, Know this right now, if you would humble your heart and say, I am not, but you are, if you ask Christ to save you, he would be delighted to save you. Well, that's it for the sermon today, but I want to end it a little differently than I normally do. Instead of praying and then repeating all my three points in a sweet prayer like I sometimes do, I would like to ask somebody to come up here, a special person. I want to do a little interview so I want to show and plug this in, give an idea of what this actually looks like in real life. And so if, uh, little girl, if you wouldn't mind joining me on stage, you want to sit right here? Okay. okay. I'm going to give you this, and if you want to kind of pull your mask down, you can talk. Put it right next to your, right next to your mouth, okay? Yeah. All right, little girl, what's your name? Clara. Hi, Clara. You look like you have a lovely mom and dad. Is that true? Yes. Yes. This is Clara, one of my daughters. So, so uh, Clara, as you were listening to the sermon today, what, 
Um, what was the big idea that you were hearing us emphasize from the text? Um, uh, being humble, uh, respecting others, and loving people. Yeah, that's fantastic, yeah. And this attitude of humility, I mean, my guess is because of the sort of home you live in, everybody in your house perfectly embodies humility with you, yeah? No. Okay. <laughs> okay, but for sure your dad does, right? No. Oh, no. All right. So again, church, I uh, just wanting you to show you like um, I'm with you too. This is like real life. So uh, Claire, do you perfectly embody humility? No. Okay. Tell me a story about a time when your dad wasn't very humble with you. Um, a while ago, me and someone else were in my parents' bedroom in their bed eating snacks. Eating snacks in their bed? Yes. Oh, what, what do your parents think about that? They hate it. Oh. I mean, I don't know where that's at in the text, but that feels very reasonable that they don't like those little popcorn pieces when they're sleeping at night. Nevertheless, <laughs> talk and to me. The other person left, so mm -hmm. I was in the bed with all the snacks, mm -hmm. and my dad came in and he started barking at me. <laughs> barking? Yes. A literal bark? What a weird dad that is. And no, what, what, what was it really like? What's your dad, what's your dad actually do when he gets really angry? He starts yelling at me, and he kicked me out of the room and didn't let me have TV for the rest of the day. Yeah, yeah, and what about all those snacks? I guess he threw them away. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so your dad sounds like he lost his cool. Um, and how, uh, tell me what that felt like to you. It was very scary. Yeah, why's that? Like your face turned all red and there was steam coming out of your ears. <laughs> I'm going to be rethinking this testimony for next hour. Just kidding, just kidding. No, 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 church, for real. Like, um, like Claire's right. Like, me too. And there's times where I'm just like, man, it's been a long day. I don't want to have little chips in my bed when I'm going to sleep at night. That makes me angry. I've only said it like one million times. Don't do it. But at the end of the day, I still got to be a humble person who's relating to you. So um, sounds like your dad was sinful and he had an arrogant heart. Yes. All right, so what, what, happened, uh, what happened next? He kind of calmed down, okay. and he came back and said sorry for yelling at me, and that's what really happened. Yeah, and then you were able to explain the, explain the details, and uh, did you feel like that got resolved the right way? Yes. Okay. How do we resolve conflict in our house? What do we have to do? Say sorry. And then what's the other per what, what do we ask the other person to do? Forgive us. Yeah, right on. And so, um, uh, dads, if you're in here, especially dads, and you got to be the kind of people, you blow it. I know you blow it. I read the book. I know I blow it. We all blow it. But you want to be the kind of dad, moms too, but you want to be the kind of parent who says, yeah, I blew it. And that's humbling. And I'm a preacher and I wish I didn't, but what Claire needs to do is grow up and what your kids need to do is grow up realizing mom and dad don't have it figured out either. And we're sinners too and we need Jesus too. And that gives a picture then because you've ever made a mistake in your life? Yes. Yes, and you've had a, you've had a difficult time being humble at times? Yes. And what's my expectation for you? Not to be, well, to be humble. To be humble, yeah, and to say sorry as well. So it's, uh, the, the gospel medicine is medicine for us all. Claire, thank you for sharing a little bit about what it's like in our life. Thanks for being the kind of person that's even willing to uh, stand up here and courageously talk. I do love you, and, I, and I'm grateful that you forgive me. And um, let me pray for you and us, church, as we uh, transition over to the music team. Jesus, thanks for um, your scripture and thanks for the guidelines it gives us for how we're to live 
as Christians in your community. And I do pray that you would help Claire and I. We struggle with humility. Would you give us more? And then would you help us when we sin to be quick to confess? And Lord, I pray that for the church as well. Church that would be quick to say, I'm sorry. Love one another. Take their sin serious. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.